to enjoy life. You have one chance and you have one heart. And if you carry all that hatred in your heart, you're preventing yourself that happiness that life is all about. You should just enjoy life, enjoy what life has to offer. And for me personally, there is nothing better in life than the laughter of a child, than to be able to pay it forward and help somebody in need, to watch them find that inner spirit and inner life again. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Contagious Smile, where every smile tells a story. I have a remarkable young man, we're going to say he's young because he's young, uh, named Martin with us, and he has an amazing turnaround, his life story, and I'm so excited to have him on. I've warned him that I don't think he's prepared for me yet today, and he thinks he is, so we'll see. Martin, it's so good to have you. Thank you for finding your time and your busy, busy schedule to be with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and this is truly an honor, and I am ready to do this. All right. Y'all heard him. It's got, I've got it down that he's ready. So when he's like, oh my God, then you know, we got him. We got him. <laughs> so you had a very interesting life. Uh, you grew up in a rough neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, correct? I did. Yes. I did. And what is really interesting, and it was kind of a fun fact, is that you have a twin brother. I very much do have a twin brother. And you were actually supposed to be named Milton, and he was supposed to be named Martin. So but you have clearly done your homework, I see. I was not expecting this, but okay. Yes, that is true. You came out first, and your mom named you Milton, and your dad said, uh, 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 uh. he's the first, he's firstborn. So he is Martin, so they did the old switcheroo, and you got Martin Jr. This is very much how this uh, story happened that I don't know how you found out about, but yes, this is how this happened. <laughs> so that is really, really cool. Are you still close with your brother today? We are the best of friends and um, he is he is a remarkable person. Yes, we are extremely close today. Good. That's awesome. 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 So I'm so taken with your story. Um, I've had the privilege of speaking with Martin before, and he is actually going to be doing our podcasting fur pause event. And we are super excited to have him. I hope I can persuade him to do quite a bit with us because he is such a resource for so many. And I know he's going to help so many people in helping get to where they need to be, which is a God sent miracle. So I'm trying to decide do we want to start? Back in the in the beginning, when you were young, you were actually quite shy, which I think is just amazing because you're not shy now. <laughs> this is this is very true. Yes. Um, so if we do start back in those days, so I grew up in a very rough neighborhood in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, in the '80s. It is much different today. It is very gentrified. It is a lot different today than it was back then. It was like 90% black back then. It's probably about 20% black today. At any rate, so it was the typical hood. There were gangs, there was drugs, there was prostitution, there were needles on the streets. It was drive-by shootings every night. It was it was a war zone. And my parents did everything they could to keep my twin brother and my two older sisters from all the chaos, right? So they would 
have us enrolled in Little League and yeah. Pop Warner football and wrestling and Cub Scouts and all these after school activities, which was great. But you and didn't like it because you didn't like to engage in that stuff. Well, I, I, I did with my teammates, right? But anybody outside of that, it was pretty much a no-go. But Except your friend of First Crush, Megan. Oh, you know way too much. <laughs> you know way too much. <laughs> so, you were very shy. You were very young. And you actually did okay in school, but you were a scholar in art. What was it about art that you liked so much? So my mom was a tremendous artist. She uh, did a lot of paintings and, and you know, watercolors and, and, and you know, charcoal, charcoal uh, uh, pencil drawings and a lot of still life. And I just marveled when I would see the, the work that she would create. And I was a mama's boy, right? So like I would always be around my mom in the house doing the domestic stuff. And my brother would be under the, you know, the car uh, with my dad doing all the manual labor stuff. And what so you, about? you would run across the neighborhood to go jump in your mom's lap while she's having tea with somebody to interrupt her to get her attention. Very much true. Again, you know, way too much. But this <laughs> this would happen on a very regular occasion. <laughs> and, and so um, so she taught me how to draw. She bought me uh, art books and things like that. And, and I just really took to that. And I really honed my craft and, and it just it was my sanctuary. As I got older and things started to get a little more chaotic, art was my sanctuary, right? When Reggie. I started skipping, Reggie came into the picture and Made very chaotic. Very chaotic, very chaotic. Um, there was a big identity crisis going on with that. And again, because I was so terribly shy and he needed a way. He was my idol. He was, he was, uh, you know, a gang member. He was well-respected. He was feared. He was everything that I was not. Right. So I very much wanted to be like Reggie and did a lot of um, not so good things in, in, in pursuit of his uh, acceptance. Right. So you guys were driving around in a stolen vehicle for months until you were told, don't look at the cut behind us. Don't do it. And of course you turn and look and you guys get lit up. And at 14, you were sitting in the back of a cop car, humbled, scared out of your mind about what your parents are going to think. And luckily they returned you to the custody of your parents and you only got a year suspension. Something tells me that you have had a sneak peek of my book because this information, <laughs> this is not information that I normally, I mean, I have no problem divulging it, but you, yes, this, this is true. That happened. This is part of the cake mix that makes you who you are. Yes. Yes, indeed. So and we're bringing uh, it all, you know, together. Very much bringing it together. So yes, that was my first encounter with the law. It, you would think it would have been a scare straight moment. I was scared for maybe, you know, five minutes. And then we were right back at it. We were right, right. back at it and, and began to steal more cars and had more run-ins with the law and expulsions from school and drinking and smoking weed and all of that stuff that teenagers without a direction tend to do. Right. And you were being a, a guy trying to find your way, find your place and figure that out. But mama wasn't having it. But I tell you what, I wanted to be at some of those dinners because some of my favorite foods were listed. And I was like, uh, oh, man. 
Yes. So, yes, we definitely had um, the greatest cook and baker ever in life in our mom. And she her food is dearly missed. Although I'll say my sister and my brother have kept some of those recipes that were passed down and they still bring them out for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Fourth of July and, you know, the major holidays. So y'all bring out the, the special utensils for Christmas dinner. We don't have the gold silverware anymore, but um, but but yeah, we 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 do our best to make it make it special and, and feel feel special for sure. That's you could just feel that love you had for your mom. I mean, it was so intense, and it, it's just beautiful. It really is. So then you're going up through all this. You're in high school. You go back to it. Oh, well, you know, we've been doing this for months. We didn't get caught. So let's just do it again. And next time I'm going to be looking forward, not behind. And this went on and on. And then what? And then at 19 years old, so I didn't graduate high school. (laughs) At 19 years old, my drinking has persisted even more so because at this point, I'm not drinking just to come out of my shy shell. I'm now drinking to not feel the pain of feeling inadequate and not measuring up to societal standards of going to college and having a good job and moving out of your parents' house and being independent, right? I had none of that. So it was much easier for me to just drown myself pity in a bottle of brandy every day. And so this this led to um, eventually my friends and I conspiring uh, on a robbery, an armed robbery that was carried out and... Long story short, with that, we were arrested. We were all charged with armed robbery in the first and second degree in Oregon. That requires a mandatory minimum sentence of, you know, five years or seven years, depending on how how it works out. I was sentenced to five and a half years uh, for my part in that robbery. And I went off to state prison at 19. What is a prison like for a 19 year old? Uh, it was scary. So my first encounter when I got to state prison, I go and I take a seat in the day room area and there's some guys playing cards over here and some guys playing chess over here. And I just sat down and this big, I don't know, he hit literally almost 400 pounds, you know, 400 pound white guy with an eye patch. And he's got a half like, you know, his limb is, is severed at the at the elbow. So he's got this dangling um, arm. And he sits down next to me and, he, and he, you know, he's like, hey, you know, what are you in for? What are you doing? And I said, man, I'm just here trying to do my time. I don't want any problems. I just want to, you know, keep to myself and go home. And he was telling me how he'd been down 20 years and, you know, this is the table for the Mexicans. So you can't sit here and everybody's got their own place to be. And, you know, you got to kind of get with the program or else things are going to be hard for you. And, you know, and I said, well, that's not me. You know, I'm not a gang member. I just, you know. And, and just trying to play it cool. And he's like, well, everybody says that coming in, but I've seen, you know, some people like you come in and, you know, they, they join up with this clique and they end up shanking somebody and they get 20 more years added on. And he's just giving me like this horror story of what I've got to look forward to for the next several years. Yeah. And I'm just like, what have I done with my life? Yeah. And so it was, it was a quite, quite a scary introduction. Thankfully it didn't stay that way. Some of the older black guys, because unfortunately, in prison, it is, in that sense, like you see it in the movies, where it's pretty segregated. It's not as bad as it is in, like, California and places like that. But guys do kind of stick to their own, so to speak. And I was never I was never brought up that way. So I talked to everybody. I had white friends and Hispanic friends and everybody. But in prison, you got to kind of go along to get along. And so 
during that time in 19, I certainly wasn't willing to buck the system, right? Right. So, but some good, some good older black guys took me under their wing, showed me how to do time the right way. I got enrolled into the GED program, got my GED, no problem. Thank you. Became a tutor, started helping other guys get their GEDs, uh, returned to my Christian roots at that time. I had the support of my family. They would come visit me, send me money, things like that. And, um, you know, I really started to think seriously about my future and what I wanted to do. And so I was able to graduate early, get released early after three and a half years uh, by going through a boot camp program. I graduated valedictorian of my platoon and, you know, things were things were looking up. I get out at 22 years of age, returned to my parents' house, got a job at a warehouse. I attended treatment groups in the evening. I enrolled in community college courses with aspirations of becoming a nurse. I wasn't drinking. I was going to church. Everything was good. But at 22 years of age, as you know, like everybody you know is going out, going to clubs, meeting girls, drinking, having a good time. And here I am sitting at home, listening to Christian music, drinking tea, right? And so that would only last for so long before I felt just this pressure to get out and live. And everybody in my neighborhood, again, were doing all of the stuff under the sun that I should not have been doing. So I, I made I made that small comp- what, what I thought was a small compromise at the time, because 95 percent of my life was going well. Right. I saved up money, got my first car. I got my license. I didn't even know how to drive and I learned how to drive. I met a girl. I moved in with her in Vancouver, Washington. I'm paying my bills. My job loves me. My school, my grades are good. So I'm thinking, well, I can drink a little bit because like, look how well I'm doing, right? right. I mean, I'm, doing, I'm doing great. And so I can dabble a little bit. And, and of course, as an alcoholic with an alcoholic brain, you know, the alcohol just doesn't want 5% of your life, right? right. It wants everything. Yeah. And so when I took that first drink, it was almost like I had never stopped drinking because I was right back to drinking every day. And so, and so the thing is, the reason why that happened, I understand this now at 43, is that even though I had done a lot of work when I had gone inside at 19, I never really addressed the underlying core issues that led to the drinking in the first place. The lack of an identity, the low self-concept, the low self-esteem, right? The, the role confusion, as they say in psychology, if you don't really know, you know who you are, what your principles are, and, and what you believe in, and what your role is in this world, then you're going you're gonna to kind of be confused, role confusion. And so that was at the heart of my drinking, and I never really addressed it. So when it came back, like it came back like a storm from God knows where. And so... Mm-hmm. At that point, I'm drinking and driving every day, and that takes us into the worst day of, of my life and, and certainly many others' lives as well. Well, before we get to that, I have to say, I, I, I'm somebody who has to give positive uh, feedback whenever possible. And I have to say that, for instance, I've been very clear with you know my daughter and everything from the jump that I don't care who you date. I don't care. I don't see color. I see you as a, as a man. I don't see... Black, white, purple, green, yellow, blue, whatever. I, I'm i still learning the pronouns. So I just say everyone and hope I don't offend. So I really was taken with your mom because when they found out that you had a thing for Megan, who was a Caucasian girl, they were like, you know, you thought you were going to get it. Your brother started ribbing you. 
And your mom was like, oh, no, 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 no. And not only was she like, uh-uh, but she was like, we look at who it is. And I was like, oh, you just want to hug the woman while she's making that cornbread because she's just, <laughs> you know, I mean, how sweet kudos to her because it wasn't judgmental. It was, you know, I want that person who's going to be good for my son. I don't care what the outer layer is. I want to know the inner layer because I keep telling, you know, my daughter, I don't care, man, woman, whatever, ethnicity, I don't care. As long as they treat you right, they don't put their hands on you inappropriately. They never, you know, disrespect you. I don't have no problem. I have no problem at that point because as long as they treat you the way you deserve to be treated, looks fade anything like that happens, but the goodness on the inside, they could be cute, but have a good heart and a good soul and they become flawless to me. So kudos, kudos to Ma, because I thought, you know, we had to give her a moment of, of praise because that was, to me, it was amazing, so. Absolutely, no, I really, really appreciate that. And she did, she did set all of us straight at that particular moment and I think you do have to you do have to be assertive when it comes to that thing when kids are very young and still impressionable and what you say matters like that because because I also had some friends whose parents were not that way like there was no way they were going to let their son bring home a white girl right and it's sad because it's like how could like how could you be that way? You, like you're not even giving this person a chance simply because of the color of their skin. And I just wasn't raised that way. Like my mom was very assertive about letting us know that anybody is welcome in this house, right? And that, like you said, as long as they're decent people and and, and all those good things, that's what we're going to judge them by. We are not going to prejudge them based on the color of their skin. We don't want people doing that to us as black people. So why would we then turn around and do that to somebody else? Right. How 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 much of a hypocrite can you be? But don't even get me started on that. I'm just grateful that I had the parents that I had and yes. that, that they treated everybody equally. So um, so yeah, so going into New Year's Eve of 2003, um, I was working at the warehouse in Portland. Again, I was living with my girlfriend in Vancouver, Washington, and I kissed her goodbye like I did every day, got in my car, drove to work. We had gotten off work early because it was the holiday, New Year's Eve. So it's like 11, 11, 11.30. We were wrapping things up. And as we're about to clock out, my boss joked with us and said, now you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but please, please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page, right? Of course, we laugh it off. We clock out. But 20 years later, almost, you can see I've never forgotten those prophetic words. Right. So I leave work. I go straight to the liquor store. I bought a fifth of gin. I proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother. That's where he was living at the time. I get to my parents' house. I drink the bottle of gin over the next three or four hours by myself. He had cut my hair. We made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high school with. And so at about five o'clock that evening, early evening, I went back to the store and I bought four 24 ounce cans of Old English beer because that was my beer of choice. Disgusting, horrible, but it was like 8.2%. So it was, you know, kind of the most bang for your buck. Right. Again, as an alcoholic, you just want to get drunk. And so I drank all four of those beers over the next three or four hours, 96 ounces of beer on top of the fifth of gin. And it's now about 8.30 or 9. My brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out. We didn't want to get to the party too early. 
So we get to that friend's house. The three of us hang out. We drink you a pint of. There. I drove there, and okay. again, it's sad to say, this is this was par for the course, right? Like none of us thought twice about drinking and driving. It's just sadly what we did on a daily basis. So we get to that friend's house. We drink the pint of Hennessy. It's now about eleven o'clock. We go to exit the, his apartment, and his mother strictly, strictly admonishes us. Now you guys go out. Do your thing, but please, please be careful. And we're now, have all... you eaten anything at this point? So I had one Popeye's meal, a chicken sandwich, and some Cajun fries at about 4.30. So that was the only meal that I had okay. to absorb all of that alcohol. <laughs> just right. not just not working. Right. And so we get to the party. We, you know, have fun. We drink more alcohol, of course. We bring in the new year. Everything is great. And we exit the party. Again, nobody's thinking to take Martin's keys because this is just what we did. So I take my friend home without incident. I get back home to your girlfriend the- with you? So it's just my brother and my friend and me. Okay. So and actually, so a, 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 an interesting note about her. So she was at home that day. She had two little girls. Uh, one was four and one was 11 at the time. And she had gotten a babysitter so that she and I could go out that night and all throughout the night, she, she, she's not texting me because back then we didn't have text messages. It was the little, you know, little push button phone. But she's she's calling me and I turn my phone off, but she's leaving messages telling me, Martin, where are you? I've got a babysitter. We're going to go out tonight. And I'm putting her off because this was another thing that I did all the time as I'm trying to pick up girls and, you know, do all that fun stuff. Right. Again, it was all about Martin superficial, self-centered, the world revolves around me, that sort of thing. And so, and so, no, I, I didn't have any communication with her that evening. On the freeway, I'm looking to take my brother home so that I could drive home to our house in Vancouver. And at this point, just go to sleep. I am so exhausted. And on the freeway, I began to pick up my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And it makes my brother nervous. He says, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out, you know, it'd be in the holiday and all. And I thought, well, that makes sense, right? So I went ahead and slowed down. We continue to drive. I take the exit about 10 minutes later. I'm now driving in a residential area. And again, I began to pick up my speed now. It's about 60 miles an hour. And he's like, dude, slow down before we crash, right? He's yelling at me. What kind of vehicle you were driving? So I was in a 96 Acura. Okay. Um, so fairly new at the time. It was 2003. So, you know, seven, seven no, years I'm just old. Trying to, is it a sedan, you know, SUV? I'm trying to picture. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a four door sedan. Okay. So full size, full size vehicle. And so we're driving and I'm speeding and he tells me to slow down and I say, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this, you know, just, just, just sit tight. So we get like a block away from <laughs> where I'm going to drop him off at our parents' house. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, man, let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. I'm thinking, great. Here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. I just want to get him home so I can go home and go to sleep. That's it. So we drive for two more blocks. And then about two blocks from that point, there's another intersection. And I'm looking up at the light. And the light is clearly yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I still knew I was not going to make this light. There was just no way. But it didn't matter because I just want to get the stupid cigarettes and go home. So in a split second, I made up my mind, I'm going to go right through. So I immediately punched the gas and I'm in a newer model vehicle. So I quickly accelerate in speed. I'm tunnel vision looking straight forward, not seeing anything to the right or left of me. And within three or four seconds at the most, just boom, 
I mean, just the most earth shattering crash you can imagine. The airbag embellows my face and my car comes to come to a slow winding halt. And I see that I'm alive. I can feel that I'm alive. So I'm thinking, okay, this is good. I look to my right. I see my brother. He appears to be okay. So I'm somewhat relieved, right? Guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle. And most people, most decent people at this point would go check on the people they had just hit. But again, I was so self-absorbed and superficial that I'm devastated because I'm looking at my prized possession in a heap of crumpled metal. And I'm just crushed by that. And then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street and he says, hey, man, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there, man. And it doesn't look like they're moving. So instantly I kind of snap out of it and I'm like, oh, my God, like, what have I done? And within seconds, of course, lights and sirens are everywhere and the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me. And I remember they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him and about Two or three minutes into that interview with that officer, he had confirmed to me what I had already in my heart of hearts known to be true, which was that person who was lying on the pavement had in fact died. And he told me that another person was being driven by ambulance to Emmanuel Hospital just blocks away. So I'm placed under arrest. I'm put into the back of the cruiser. We head downtown for processing. I'm driving through my neighborhood, drive right past my parents' block, and I look down the, the street one more time because I knew that the law in Oregon requires, no if ands, or buts about it, requires a mandatory 10-year sentence day for day for a DUI manslaughter. I knew that. And so I'm thinking, I'm not coming back for at least 10 years. I'm listening to the police radio from the backseat. There's a lot of chatter about the crash, as you can imagine. And about 10 minutes into that ride, it sounded like that somebody else was in that vehicle who had died at the scene. So I asked the officer from the backseat, I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did, Did I just hear that somebody else was in that vehicle and they didn't make it? He said, unfortunately, yes. And so just the, I mean, just like I sank, like I was already just broken and devastated because I'm responsible for like, at that point, I knew one human life no longer with us because of my reckless, stupid actions. And I'm also knowing that I'm going to prison for at least 10 years. And now that's been compounded. So now there's two deaths and that's 20 years in prison that I'm looking at. And so needless to say, that was, that was the absolute lowest, worst point of, of my 24 year old life. Now, what really grabbed me in this whole thing is you were sitting, you went into the judge's chambers to get your sentencing. And when you were in there and you were waiting, your attorney was trying to talk to you about, well, you can go to to trial and see if they give you 16 years or you might get 17. We don't know. Do you want to go through all of that? I'm trying to save you from all of this. And you just had this profound moment where you found yourself looking past your attorney into a window that was out there. And even though the sky was blue and the sun was shining, you didn't see that. You saw images of your childhood at a time when you were happy and free and blameless of things. And you were like outside of yourself looking at all of this, 
but you're sitting in this judge's chambers waiting on the judge who wasn't even in there at that moment. How was that for you to, to have these visions outside like that? You're right. Because at that point, my life was over. Like everything that, that you know, that I was fond of and, you know, I, where I'm reflecting on this life where I didn't have to worry about these these life-changing consequences. And I come from a loving family. And so I just, in that moment when, when everything was crumbling around me, like I needed to grasp a hold of something that felt familiar and warm and, and comforting. But it was also, it was also just as tragic in the same moment because I know that those days are over, right? right? That I'm going to spend almost the next 20 years in prison at the age of 25. Like I just couldn't wrap my head around that. And so mm -hmm. it was, it was, it was, it was a surreal moment. It was like, it felt like an out of body experience, but it was me recon reconciling the fact that, you know, everything I had known, everything I had grown up with, like I was leaving behind and I had to embrace a whole new life that lay ahead of me that I had no idea how that was going to look or how I was going to, you know, grow and navigate you know, within that situation. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was just a surreal moment. Right. So what happened with your girlfriend? What happened on that end? So my girlfriend was solidly rock solidly by my side for the first year and a half of that sentence. And, but again, you, you know, I was 25, she was 27. Like you can't expect as much as I wanted to, you can't expect for somebody at that age or really at any age to wait 17 and a half years for you. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and well, well, forget all of that, but also the fact that I had been unfaithful to her, she had taken me back. Right. So I wasn't the greatest of boyfriends, you know, to kind of hang my hat on in the first place. And so, but I, you know, she tried and, and I will give her credit for trying, but that's just an overwhelming situation for anybody to be in so mm -hmm. we we ended up um breaking up about a year and a half into my sentence which actually turned out to be the best thing that happened because i was able to meet my now fiance and the one that who has been by my side for 16 or she did 16 of that 17 and a half years with me how did and you meet her so i uh -oh. right so <laughs> how did you meet her so I was very, um, you know, lonely after I after I lost my girlfriend and I got on a prison pen pal website, just looking to make contact with the outside world. Sure. Not really looking for romance, to be honest with you. But when uh -huh. you're in prison, you feel like the, the rest of the world kind of forgets about you. Right? right. And so I put my ad on there. Just say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm interested in. This, these are my goals in life. At that point, I decided that I'm going to become a drug and alcohol counselor to honor my victims. Um, you know, and, and so I get a letter from this woman in Pennsylvania a couple months later. And, you know, she's just a one paragraph. She's like, hi, I saw this documentary on prisoners and they were saying how one letter can brighten up an inmate's day and just really mean so much to them. And she's got one of the biggest hearts you'll ever, you'll ever find in a person. And so she said, I just want to brighten an inmate's day. So I, she, she went online. She didn't know where to begin. How do you even write somebody in prison? What does that look like? So she just Googles whatever prison pen pal or whatever it was. There's like a thousand ads on there. There's guys on there with 
you know, their muscles poked out and, you know, some guys right. with, the, you know, the main mug and all that. And I'm just me. So I've got my hands in my pockets, a little shy, and I, I've got a smile, right? And and I was just normal, so to speak. And um, she really, she really appreciated that. So she reached out to me and we struck up a correspondence and I couldn't wait to get her letters. She couldn't wait to get mine. We were writing 10 page letters to each other front and back. And over the course of about six months, we started to develop feelings for each other. So then those letters turned into phone calls, phone calls turned into her getting on an airplane, traveling 2,500 miles to Oregon to stay for five consecutive days to come visit me in the morning and the afternoon. Wow. And, and, and she would do that every six months. Meanwhile, right. she had she had really taken an interest in who I was and the person I wanted to develop into. So when I told her that I want to get a, a degree, you know, to become a counselor, then, you know, she took to the internet and did like four hours of research, found the, the, the universities that were offering correspondence courses, because in Oregon, there's no internet in prison. So everything had to be done through the mail, paper-based. Oh, and there, wow. there, were, there were not many schools that, that had those programs, but we found right. a few. <laughs> And so um, she got me set up with Indiana University. She would, you know, order the classes, order my books from Amazon, have them sent in. She had to order my exams to be proctored, you know, through the school, like this whole working with the advisors and all of this behind the scenes work to ensure that I could get the education that she felt I deserved. And so I always tell her, like, she believed in me long before I believed in myself. Like she just saw something in me that she she you know, wanted to support. And so long story short with that, I ended up uh, getting a uh, uh, an associate's degree in 2010. I got a bachelor's in sociology um, in 2013. And then I got a master's in psychology in 2016. And she uh, is largely why all of that happened, not to mention two published books that, so I literally so I started writing my memoir in 2010 in my cell, piece of paper and a pen, and just started writing. And my I was prison life or the prison to purpose pipeline. Which prison to per- prison to purpose pipeline. Yes. What about I- the palpable irony? So, so the first <laughs> book. Okay, so yes, you know everything. So palpable irony was actually the the title that was the title that I chose for my memoir was palpable irony. I recently, since I've been out, I um, republished it under prison of purpose pipeline because palpable irony was, it was too much of an abstract title. People were like, they couldn't even pronounce palpable. They were like, what? And I was like, I love the line with it. Losing my freedom to find my purpose. That is so powerful. It is just, it really got me. I was like, Man, that is so strong in so many ways. It covers religion. It covers what you went through. It covers everything. I mean, it, it's just like the perfect lifetime tagline for you. I really like the subtitle. I just didn't like the palpable irony. So I went ahead and republished it under uh, Prison of Purpose Pipeline. But she is the reason why that even came to fruition, because I would write a chapter and if you saw my handwriting, you'd be like, yeah, there's no way I can, I can, you know, <laughs> transcribe this. I can't even read half of it. And so she would sit in front of her computer and just start typing all of my, 
my When's words, the wedding? You better snatch real quick. When's uh, the yes. wedding? Yes. Uh, so next October, we're targeting next October. Why are you waiting so long? Well, because we have. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about you talking to her. <laughs> but um, but anyway, no. So she's she's like she's my angel. She's incredible. She's everything to me. We're very happy over a year later. People say that these types of relationships never work. And granted, a lot of them don't because people go into them with the you know bad motives. And it's just, you know, a lot of people haven't done the work within themselves to even be healthy enough for a thriving relationship. And so, um, but yeah, we're doing great. And, and so, so yeah, she supported my goals and, and brought them to fruition and, and here we are. Amazing. So you also got the newspaper. We, we missed this part. We got the newspaper while you were incarcerated and you read it and tell me what changed your life that, that one sentence. 100 percent so three days after this terrible terrible crash i'm in my cell i'm just minding my own business and i noticed that someone has slid the oregonian newspaper underneath my door and i didn't understand why because I, I didn't ask anybody to see a paper but i figured it must be something in there that i need to read so i pick it up and i begin to thumb through it and i see my picture on the front page of one of the the sections and with each paragraph that i read that morning for the first time in several days, my faceless victims became people. And these people had an incredible story. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had managed to turn their lives around and were now helping others get clean and sober. So for instance, they would watch women's kids so that the women could attend AA and NA meetings, watch their kids so that they could, they could go to their, their, their treatment um, uh, sessions. They were volunteers, believe it or not, with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They were volunteers at Volunteers of America. They were widely beloved and celebrated in the community for this amazing work that they had dedicated their lives to, having come through their own battles with addiction. And in fact, that very night that this tragedy happened, they were coming home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. The lone survivor of the collision, he was a middle-aged man. He had actually proposed to his fiance, the driver, that night at that party in front of all of their friends. Like oh, you just like wow. you just couldn't you couldn't write a more ironic, tragic story. And so I learned about all of this in this article. And the columnist concluded the article with, as you alluded to, this sentence that changed the rest of my life. Quote, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. And so it was it, it was so resonant at the time. Now, I'd be lying if I said that I knew magically how I was supposed to apply that that phrase to my life. Right. right. Because I'm still I'm still 24 years old. and I'm looking at 20 years in prison. So that's still weighing very much heavily on my mind and still grappling with the fact that literally two people are no longer on planet earth because of my actions. Right. So, but, but, but I couldn't ignore that phrase. And so for the next, I don't know, six or seven months, I literally would meditate on that phrase. Like I would be eating my breakfast and I would hear it. I would lay my head down to go to sleep. I would hear that phrase. And I prayed about it. And, and, and eventually um, it came to me 
that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies. If I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to not just ensure that something like this never happens again, but to help anyone I can who's struggling in active addiction so that so that they can have a chance at life right. so that they can so that they can not feel this 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 pain and agony that forget forget what I'm feeling these victims family members are feeling right because of my alcoholism because my 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 disease wasn't treated so I want to be a part of the solution no longer part of the problem so I didn't know I didn't know how that was going to manifest I didn't know what I needed to do to to bring that about but I knew I was committed to the purpose I knew that much there was nobody that was going to convince me otherwise that I had any other purpose on planet earth so my energy was thrust into that and then that energy was met with Robin who brought all of this to fruition and that's why I know that like nothing happens by accident and um so that was the that was the beginning of this this purpose and this this mission and this focus that I've had uh since 2004 so tell everybody what you're doing now so I got certified as a drug and alcohol counselor when I was still in prison and that in itself was a miracle because that just doesn't happen. They don't even have a program, you know, for like the masses incarcerated to get certified. But again, just a testament to the fact that nothing happens by accident. So I got certified through the state of Oregon as a, as a substance abuse counselor. I, so I'm a counselor today. I work uh, on the National Suicide Prevention Line as well as the drug and alcohol line. I perform screenings for people who are cited with small amounts of drugs in the state of Oregon. It's no longer criminalized. We connect them with uh, uh, treatment resources in the community, things like that. And then in my free time, I speak at DUI victim impact panels. So I speak in person, I speak remotely, I speak to kids who have gotten a minor in possession charge. So they're right at that cusp of starting to go down that wrong path. And it's, 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 it's my opportunity to speak with them and, and use my, my life experience along with my education to get them to, to see that there's a different, a different uh, uh, path, you know, it, where that fork in the road meets, that you can go right instead of left. And so I do that. I love it. I um, co-host a podcast myself called Rock the Bottom Podcast, where we speak to people who have hit rock bottom, whatever that may look like in your life. And how you navigated that and now how you're, you know, kind of transforming that into a purpose driven life. And so that's been that's been fun. And um, I do a lot of traveling, you know, I, I balance work with play. And so I have, you know, been skydiving and surfing and to the Bahamas and to Vegas for the first time and, wow. you know, D.C. And, you know, and, 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 you know, I'll tell you about six months before I got out. I was worried, a part of me to worry that life would be boring sober because I had not been sober in the free world for how many years. And so a part of me was kind of, you know, um, uh, apprehensive about that. But let me just say that, like, I have lived my best life sober and have enjoyed every minute of it. And like, I couldn't be more fulfilled. I have a purpose every day that I wake up and I have fun that I can remember the next day. And, you know, like is I'm literally living a, a what I see as a dream life. Like I, I couldn't be I couldn't be happier. 
Well, let me ask you, I work with a lot of survivors, domestic violence, and I'm really also working with the kids. And I, I love the opportunity of uniting with you and, and the process of, I, I resonate more with the girls and the boys. Um, the, the, the men, teenager guys are very standoffish with me. And I, I try to find that equal ground. I try to, you know, bring it to like, I'll just sit down with them. Well, mostly pre-COVID, I would just sit down and be like, you know, just sit there and, or I would learn something about them. And I'd say, oh, I'm watching this Harry Potter video. And I don't know who that is, especially if I knew they like Harry Potter or, you know, whatever that is. But COVID now I do a lot of it virtually. but I am really trying to teach these kids how to stop the cycle because when they grow up and they see that dad is hitting mom or mom is hitting dad, that that is how the daughter feels it's okay to be treated by a man or that is how a man is supposed to treat a woman. And I keep trying to tell them that that is not the case. And these are the people who are influencing those kids for the next stage of life. And we're trying to stop it from happening. If you had a, a kid who is just adamantly not listening and said, this is all I know, they got out of line, I'm going to shut their mouth, they end up bullying at school, because all they want is attention, they don't care right. if it's positive, they don't care if it's negative, they want to feel like they matter, because at home they don't, right, so, you know, I was, I did a live show, and I, and I was saying about it, that, you know, if I know that the individual likes to color, I'll go in there, and I can't draw a stick person, so <laughs> I'll try to draw, and then, I, you know, I had someone ask me, well, what happens if, you know, they draw and the picture's really bad. And I'll say, oh, that's gorgeous. What is that? Is that your home? And I had a little boy saying, no, it's my stepdad's home. And then you could see his reaction. And immediately I was like, oh, is that your dog? What kind of dog is that? What's his name? Is it a he or is it a she? Does she do tricks? And then the trust came back. Like the color came back in their face. They felt like that trust, like they weren't going to get pushed like everybody else is pushing. Exactly. Them. And you build that connection of trust. And I, and I, I said this so many times. It's not going to happen necessarily on the first meeting, might not happen on the second, but you know what, if you rush to, to judgment and rush to conclusion, you're going to cause more problem for that right. child and that family, because you might say, well, it might be the dad doing it, but it could be the mom, you know, right. you don't know. So build the bridge. But what do you say to a young kid who feels like he's lost in his way and he has no other choice? I mean, what, what would you say to a young man in that situation now? Right. And so you're right. I think ultimately, I think kids want to be, I think as human beings, we just want to be validated mm -hmm. and to know that whatever it is that we're feeling like it's not wrong. Right. We should not be made to feel ashamed for feeling however we feel. And so I think it's so, so, so like you said, so, you know, when there's trauma there, then obviously, you know, that that, you know, that has to be processed over a period of time. And they have to be able to feel that it's safe enough to talk about this trauma, right? And that's why there's, you know, child psychologists and this and that. But ultimately, if you can just show the patience, because so many people have given up on these kids. That's and right. so many people, and all they've heard is that they're bad or they're this or they're that. So they have this terrible sense of, of, of self-worth and self-concept. And they just don't trust the world, right? right. I mean, when we're, when we're kids, we're, we're really trying to figure out, is the world trustworthy right am i safe in this world and so those early ingrained experiences will stick with you throughout your entire childhood and even into adult life right. and so and, and so you show that there is people there are people who can be trusted in this world you show that patience you show that delicate touch right you build that rapport 
And I think the biggest thing is that you show um, you show an interest in their interests, right? right? And for a lot of kids, they don't even know what they're interested in. But if, if you start to present alternatives to them, other than what they know, because they feel that, well, this is all I've seen, so this is all I know, so this is what I'm going to do, right? right? You show them that there's something different. You sit with them in that space. You encourage them, right? Once you start to encourage, oh my God, you're doing so good. Look how awesome that looks. That is so great. You validate them and their, you know, their industry, right? Because now they're like, oh, I can do this and I can be good at it and I can, right? I can start to see myself in a different light. Now that happens over time. Right. But I think I think that consistency and that compassion and that validation, I think that's kind of where you start to build those those building blocks. If there's some deep-seated you know, like, like heavy, heavy trauma, then obviously you want to work with a specialist when it comes to that stuff. Cause you're not, you know, a child psychologist by trade, right. but again, that human compassion kind of, you know, consistency will definitely go a long way. Right. Cause I've told people, I was like, even if you go in the room and he's very standoffish, you know, I had someone ask me, well, if they're very standoffish and they don't want to talk to you, I said, that's fine. I'll just go in there and sit down and be like, oh it's been such a long day oh peace and quiet thank god and I just get quiet because I know he doesn't want to talk and then I'll just be like oh this is just a day you're not you're not talking great because I'm not talking either I'm just gonna sit here and then I've tried to learn do I know anything about this kid does he like football does he like baseball you know whatever and I don't have any idea because I have no knowledge going in okay well he's clean cut he has a, a whatever jersey on. Oh, so you're a football fan? And that's not even right away. That's after a good, solid little bit of quiet and be like, I wonder how it's going to go. And I ain't going to lie. I might have my phone under the table Googling who's going to be the quarterback this year because I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'll do that and then and then just be like, oh, you know, are you excited that the football season's about to start or baseball season's about to start? And be like, man, I just need to talk about something that I have to do with everyday life because I am exhausted. And just be quiet and let them have it. Let them have the floor. Let them feel like you could be there just to listen, be their ear, be their shoulder, be their hand. It doesn't matter. Let them talk and don't ask questions. And I've told people, I said, even when, you know, they start talking and you see that they're starting to recluse, change the subject, you know, right. be like, oh, wow. So that was going on. Well, you know, what did you end up doing at that time in school? Was there like an art fair, science fair? Did you do a project? Oh yeah, I did a science fair and I won first place. That's awesome. What was it about? Because you're bringing them back up to a high. Absolutely. You're bringing them off of the subject. You're bringing them back into you for trust. And you're, they are actually thinking this person doesn't want to know what's going on at home. This person's not asking why I have X, Y, and Z, or why this is happening, or why I'm unhappy. Maybe I can't trust this person. That's right. And that's so critical. That's what they need. Absolutely. And you're taking an interest in their interest, just, just, just for them as a person, right? And being interested in who they are as a person and, 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 and things that, you know, things that they like. And, you know, you really don't understand the, the, the importance of that, um, I do. Well, I, I shouldn't say you don't, but but it really it really became evident to me the importance of giving a child that proper attention. When I saw studies, when I was doing my psychology courses and they had looked at the brains of kids and, and the development of the brains of kids who had gone through terrible, terrible abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you name it. 
compared to kids who had simply been neglected at home, right? Parents didn't abuse them. They just weren't there and let them kind of roam free and do whatever they want to do. And the brains were almost identical. They were almost identical. So showing that attention, that positive reinforcement is so critical to their development and, and, you know, how they see themselves and, you know, uh, how much they trust the world and just, you know, it has a lot to do with their personality, you know, to shape their personality and how much they're willing to engage in life, right? right? How much they're going to explore. And, and, and all those things are stifled when they are either abused or neglected. They both have a terrible, terrible effect. I love a book called The Invisible String. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's, it's just great. The, the whole overview of the book is like, and I, I've done it with my daughter so many times with her surgeries, is, is we have a ritual that we do every time we have a surgery. Um, and now she's like, I'm older. I don't have to. Yes, ma'am. You do. Oh, yes, <laughs> Like she, you know, holds her breath out of anxiety before we would go. So we would sing. Why? Because it is monitoring her breathing she has to breathe a certain way she never knew why I was doing this we would get there and I'd be like all right I gotta go to the bathroom every single time same thing and I'm like oh we gotta shake our sillies out so we would shake the fear out we would just shake it out and we would go in there and I'd always say oh oh you feel that do you feel it I'm like let me get it and I pretend to tug and I'm like you feel that I was like that's that invisible string and even though you're going in there I would walk her to the door and I would say you know what it's endless. That string is like a hundred miles long because she doesn't realize it's five, 10, 15, 20 feet. It's a hundred miles long and you're still attached to me and I can feel you and I'm going to talk to you and we're going to meet somewhere in your dream. And that's where we're going to meet. Where we go on Disney, we're going to Disney. And it's the invisible string and it talks about the connection you always have and nobody else has to know. And that way you don't, it, the kid doesn't get in trouble and you can have it no matter what, at what age. And I love that. And, you know, she's like, mom, I'm so old for this, whatever. Well, this last time she had surgery, she was about to go back. And I look at her and she goes and pulls the string off. And I'm like, she'll never forget it. I was like, thank you. Because I'm (laughs) nervous. I don't care if it's first surgery or 30. It's surgery. It doesn't make it any easier, you know? So it's amazing. I have the best feeling about you. I know you're going to do the most amazing, wonderful things. It is such an honor to have you on. And I'm so excited that you're going to be honoring us with podcasting for pause. Um, you are amongst amazing company. And I, I hope that I get the privilege to work with you more uh, here in the future. Well, you are incredibly sweet. And thank you. It was totally my honor, my pleasure to be here. And any way that you guys want to use me uh, toward the greater good, count me in. Uh, I couldn't be, I could, couldn't be more honored. Thank you so much for being here. Now tell everybody where they can get your books. Uh, you can get my books, Prison of Purpose Pipeline and My Prison Life on Amazon, amazon.com, the one and only. So yeah. I do hope you check it out. I do not think you will be disappointed. I don't think they will either. And I have him on my Instagram and you guys can find him on Instagram. And like I said, this the, you just get the most amazing connection when you have the honor of speaking with Martin. And so I thank you for your time and I look forward to us speaking soon. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you.